Our reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denaries, and three quarts of barley for denaries, but do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that has been rolled, being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The word of the Lord.
Well, this passage that Carrie just read is pressing a question on us, and it's a painful question. But if we want to be emotionally and spiritually and psychologically healthy people, then we can't avoid this question. The question is, what do we do with evil? How do we make sense of it? How do we respond to it? Many people would say, does evil really even exist? I was reading an article earlier this week about many scientists who say that what we call evil is really nothing more than uh, a malfunction in the wiring of certain people's brains. That it's kind of like a, a, a computer that's missing a crucial chip in the hardware. And then that's where we get um, serial killers and genocidal maniacs like Hitler. In, in other words, it just means that the empathetic wiring that exists in most people's brains, these people are missing that. But is that a sufficient answer for the problem of evil? Uh, for instance, that may explain certain individuals like Hitler, but can it explain the thousands of Germans who followed him? Or can it explain the death camps where millions of Jews were murdered? Would it be a sufficient answer for someone like Primo Levi? Primo Levi was a Jewish-Italian scientist, and in 1944, Primo Levi became prisoner number 174517 in the most infamous death camp that ever existed, Auschwitz, a place that murdered as many as 12,000 people every single day and then just shoveled their bodies out to make room for more. One morning in Auschwitz, Primo Levi was thirsty. He looked outside of his hut and he saw an icicle hanging there. So he walked out, grabbed hold of the icicle. But as soon as he was about to put it in his mouth, a heavy guard came by, snatched it out of his hand and just smashed it on the ground. Primo Levi cried out, why? And the guard just said, here, there is no why and shoved him back in his hut. Do we just say that that guard or the soldiers whose job it was to shovel the bodies away, do we just say that they were missing a chip in their brain? What do we do with evil? We're in a series on the book of Revelation. Last week, we saw this amazing picture of God sitting on his throne, but here's the problem. If God is on his throne, in other words, if God is in control of everything, then that just makes the problem of evil worse. Because we look around at the world and, and we have the same question as Primo Levi, why? Revelation is God's answer to the problem of evil. And beginning in this passage and moving forward throughout the rest of the book, we see the beginning of God's answer to the problem of evil. Let's take a look this week and ask three questions about evil. What is it? What does it look like in our lives? And lastly, what is God doing about it? What is evil? What does it look like in our lives? And what is God doing about it? Okay? First, what is evil? Last week, we were in chapters four and five. We had this amazing vision of, of God on his throne in heaven. And Jesus goes over to God and takes a scroll from God's hand in order to open the scroll. Now, we saw that this scroll is God's master plan for bringing perfect healing and renewal to the whole world. So this passage, Jesus begins to unseal the scroll, which means that we would expect to see the elimination of evil. Instead, we see a history of evil. 
especially these first four seals, which are four horses. Each of these horses and the riders represents a different manifestation of evil. So if you look at the first one, it's a white horse, and it says that its rider was, was going out conquering and to conquer. This represents conquest in the world. Or the second horse was a bright red horse, and its rider had a great sword. This represents war and bloodshed. The third horse is a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And notice what it says about this. There's a call that went out with this rider that says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley, that was like just barely enough food to feed a small family. And a denarius was a whole uh, day's wages. What, this is talking about poverty and starvation and famine and economic inequality. The last horse that we see here is a pale horse and its rider is death. You put all of these horses together and you have conquest, war, poverty, economic inequality, starvation, death, evil. Here's the question. Why in the world would God's plan for bringing healing and renewal to the world begin with a picture of God allowing evil to run amok in the world? One of the big things that this passage is showing us is the history of evil. That this is what human beings have always done throughout history and what human beings continue to do even today. One of the main messages of this whole passage is just this, that evil is not the opposite of death. It's, uh, I mean, of, of good. It's the counterfeit of good. So for instance, um, when we look at evil, what is evil? If we go back to that first horse again, uh, notice it talks about the rider on the horse and, and it describes the rider. Literally what it says is the one seated on it. Now that's important. We may say, okay, What's the big deal about this? But if we go back to chapters four and five, we see that whenever Revelation talks about God, it never just calls him God. It says the one seated on the throne. That means there's a contrast here between God seated on his throne and these riders seated on their horses. I think you can see where this pattern is going. The next thing it says about this rider and his horse is that he had a crown. Now, crowns are not necessarily bad things. Back in chapter 4, we saw there were 24 angelic beings, elders, who were surrounding God's throne, and they had crowns, but they, it says, cast their crowns at God's feet. This rider isn't doing that. And the last thing we see is that this rider is on a white horse. Now, white is a symbol of light and purity and goodness. You put all this together and it looks like what we have here is an image of a noble rider with a crown on a white horse symbolizing goodness and purity and light. What we really have here is a counterfeit king. Friends, as I just said, one of the main things this passage is showing us is that evil is not the opposite of good. Evil is the counterfeit of good. It's, it's not the opposite of good. That's way too simplistic. The Bible is always far more nuanced about what evil really is, that it's not the opposite of good. It's the counterfeit of good. In other words, evil is taking good things and twisting them into ultimate things. It's taking a, a healthy desire for ambition and twisting it into conquest. 
or a healthy use of power and twisting it into war, or a healthy desire for economic security and twisting it into economic oppression. Evil is, is taking good things and twisting them into ultimate things. And whenever we do that, it ends up twisting our hearts. And here's the really terrifying thing about this. This means that, that we all have the same capacity for evil. In other words, this means that evil is not just some small little category and that the only people that go in that category are like serial killers and Hitlers and people who let their dogs poop on your lawn. That, that evil is a much bigger category, that we all have the same capacity for evil. We, we all have evil inside of us. Now, does this offend you? You know, just a moment ago, we were talking about Auschwitz. Adolf Eichmann was um, a German official who was the architect. He was the guy who built and designed and ran the death camps during the Holocaust. In 1961, um, they captured Adolf Eichmann and they brought him to Jerusalem to stand trial. And they called a witness in to testify against him. It was Yehiel Denur. Yehiel Denur was a survivor of Auschwitz. And you can actually watch his testimony on YouTube. During the trial, Yehiel Denur was testifying to all of the horrors that he experienced in Auschwitz. And the whole time, Adolf Eichmann was sitting there behind a glass booth in the courtroom. At one point during his testimony, it's amazing, Yehiel Denur um, shrieked. And then he fell out of his chair and collapsed on the ground on his face. He was so overcome with emotion of some kind that some attendants had to come over and pick him up off of the ground. It's an incredibly dramatic moment in the testimony. Many years later on 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace interviewed Yehiel Denur, and he asked him about that moment. He said, what happened? Why were you so overcome? Was it fear? Was it hatred? Was it reliving all of these horrible memories? And, and Yehiel Denur just said it was none of that. I, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable of this too, that I am exactly as he, Eichmann, is in all of us. Friends, if somebody like Yehiel Denur could say something like that about himself, where does that leave the rest of us? We all have the same capacity for evil. Evil is not the opposite of good. It's the counterfeit of good. It's taking good things and twisting them into ultimate things. And whenever we do that, it ends up twisting us. And that leads to our next point. We've just asked, what is evil? But secondly, what does it look like in our lives? Well, if we move on to the next seal, the fifth seal... Uh, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this is a picture of Christian martyrs during the first century who had been um, martyred uh, during the Roman persecution. At first glance, it would look like this is a contrast between the good Christian martyrs on one side and the evil people who kill them on the other side. But, as with everything else in the Bible, if we dig a little deeper, we always find that there's a surprise waiting for us. There is a contrast here, but the contrast is not between the good people on one side and the evil people on the other side. 
I mean, we just saw the Bible is showing us that we all have the same capacity for evil. The contrast here is not between the good people and the evil people. It's deeper than that. And the key is in the word dwell. This is pointing to the reality that we all dwell in something. That means that we all root our lives in something. We were talking about this last week. That we all have something in our lives that we look to to give us a, an, a sense of ultimate significance and security. And whatever that thing is, that's what we're dwelling in. So when it talks about those who dwell on the earth, that's talking about um, anyone who dwells in something other than God. They're dwelling in something on earth. So that might mean things like money or success or power or achievement. It could mean things like romance or family or being a really good person or even devoting yourself to a life of justice. Or more and more, especially in our culture today, for many people, it means um, creating and expressing your own unique personal identity, finding and expressing your own authentic self. Now, we would look at all of those things and we would say, well, none of those things look particularly evil. But think about this. Do you think that Hitler woke up one morning when he was a teenager and said, gee, I think I'm going to devote the rest of my life to becoming the most infamous mass murderer who ever lived? Of course not. How did that happen to him? <laughs> little by little. No one has ever put this better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Friends, every single moment of our lives is filled with choices in which we are either dwelling in God more and more or we're dwelling in something else more and more. What are you dwelling in this morning? What good things are in your life that you have a tendency to twist into ultimate things. Do you know what they are? And can you see how these things are twisting you? And remember what we said. It's not that these are bad things. We only do this with really good things. Um, money and success and power and achievement are good things. There's nothing wrong with romance or family or justice or, or, or even politics. The problem is when we root our identity in these things, when we're dwelling in them instead of dwelling in God. And whenever we do this, these things end up twisting us. And it happens so slowly that we can barely even see it. You know, the real danger with evil is not that it's so grotesque and monstrous and obvious and easy to see. The real danger with evil is that it's so difficult to see. It's the counterfeit of good. That means the contrast here is not between good people 
and evil people. It's between finding your ultimate significance and security in God or in something else. The amazing thing about the gospel is that it offers you a significance and a security unlike any other. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what is evil. We've looked a little bit at what does it look like in our lives. Our last point is what is God doing about it? What is God doing about evil? Well, the simple answer is he's destroying evil. So as we mentioned, the scroll is God's plan to bring healing and renewal to the whole world. And, and in this passage, we see Jesus opening the seal, unrolling unru the scroll. So at the very end of this passage, in the opening of the sixth seal, what we see is a great earthquake. The sun turns black, the moon blood red, the, the stars fall out of the sky as though they were being uh, like fruit being shaken loose from a tree in a violent wind. All of this imagery is pointing to God's ultimate judgment on evil. Now, in our culture, we really struggle with this idea of a God who judges. It's incredibly offensive to us. And so much so, it's such a difficult topic, in fact, that we are going to devote a whole sermon to this subject uh, later on in this series. So keep tuning in. But today, if you're someone who struggles with the idea of a God who judges, let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with the idea of justice? Probably not. We live in a tremendously justice-oriented society. We want justice. So what we're seeing here in Revelation is, is that one day God is going to bring an earthquake of perfect justice in the world. He is going to shake the universe free of evil, which is really good news for the universe, but really bad news for us. Because if we all have evil inside of us, and we do, then the real question is, how is God supposed to destroy evil in the world without destroying us? Here's the answer. Uh, notice how this passage describes Christians. It's, it's not a question of who they are, but where they are. So if you look at how John describes them, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Where are Christians? They're under the altar. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that Christians are under the altar? In the temple, in uh, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament, the altar was the place of sacrifice. So an innocent, blameless, perfect animal was slain, and then its blood was poured over the altar, and any guilty person could come and take shelter under the blood of that sacrifice. The sacrifice was a substitute so that all the, the guilt of, of the person was transferred onto the sacrifice, but the innocence and the blamelessness and the perfection of the sacrifice was transferred onto the guilty person. Friends, Revelation is showing us that Jesus is the lamb who was slain. 28 times in the book of Revelation, it refers to Jesus as the lamb. That means that he is the ultimate sacrifice. So being under the altar means that instead of dwelling, in, 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 instead of finding your ultimate security and significance in your own performance, it means that you're now dwelling, you're, you're finding your significance and security in Christ's performance on your behalf. To be under the altar means that you're dwelling under the shelter of the perfect one who took the justice you deserve so that you could receive the glory and the honor and the welcome that he deserves. And the place he did that 
was on the cross. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate defeat of evil. You know, when we began this passage, we noticed those first four horses. And whenever one of those horses comes forward, you remember how there was always a cry that said, come. In other words, come on evil, do your thing. Uh, Spare not, do your worst, come. So that whenever one of these four horses comes forward, what happens? They're shaking the world with evil. This this whole passage shows us the history of evil in the world, that the, the world, the whole history of the world is one great earthquake of evil that has been shaking the world since the beginning of time. Dear ones, on the cross, Jesus Christ stared evil and death in the face, and he said, come. Come on, evil. Spare not. Do your worst. And it did on him. The cross is the ultimate place where the ultimate earthquake of evil came down because Jesus was shaken on the cross. But because he was shaken on the cross, he has shaken evil and death to the ground. It broke him. But in breaking Jesus, evil and death broke itself. So that if you're under the altar, if you're taking shelter under the blood of the lamb, do you realize what this does for you? Do you ever feel shaken by the world? When people criticize you, or maybe they trash talk you, does it shake you? Or maybe, you know, if a relationship falls apart, or, or if you're hoping for a relationship that never materializes, are you shaken by that? Or especially in our world today, right now with this pandemic, uh, do you feel shaken by things like economic insecurity or loneliness or anxiety or sickness or depression? The world is full of evil that will shake us. But if you're under the altar, if you're dwelling under the shelter of the lamb, then it doesn't mean that that those things don't hurt you. Of course they do, but they cannot shake you to the ground because you're not dwelling in them. You're dwelling in the lamb who was shaken for you. That means that you can look at evil and you can say, come. You can say, come on, evil, do your thing. Slay me, do your worst, (laughs) spare not. It means that you can follow Jesus wherever he may lead you. And oftentimes Jesus will lead you in, into places that look very dark, places you don't want to go. It, it means that Jesus will sometimes lead you into an obedience that you don't want to give him. He will lead you into places that look like danger and evil and darkness. But he always does so in order to accomplish his purposes of bringing healing to the world and transforming you into something greater than you were before. There's a great old fairy tale that is a perfect example of this. It's called The Princess and the Goblin. And it's about an eight-year-old girl named Irene, whose grandmother gives her a magic ring tied to a ball of thread. And, And she says to Irene, Irene, whenever you're in danger, take this ring and put it under your pillow and then start to feel the thread. The thread will always lead you forward to safety, to me. But you have to remember that you can't let go of the thread, otherwise you'll get lost. And if you try to go backwards, the thread will disappear. The only way forward into safety is to follow the thread forward. So one night, Irene is in her room, and some goblins try to get into her room in order to get her. And so she can hear them snarling and hissing and growling at her. So she takes the ring and puts it under her pillow, and immediately she feels the thread grow taut, and she begins to follow the thread. At first, it follows, uh, leads her out of her room, and she thinks it's going to lead her upstairs to the safety of her grandmother's room. Instead, it leads her outside into the dark where all the goblins are. 
And then as she's following the thread, it leads her up into the mountains and into the heart of the cave where all the goblins live. And Irene is thinking, this is crazy. Uh, this is leading me away from safety. This is leading me deeper into danger. But she just kept thinking about her grandmother, how her grandmother said, follow the thread, follow the thread forward. So she keeps following it forward, deeper into the cave, deeper into darkness, the whole time thinking about her grandmother until finally the thread disappears into a pile of stones and she can't go any farther forward. It's a dead end and she starts weeping uncontrollably. But then she remembers, my grandmother would not have told me to follow the thread if she wasn't telling me the truth that it would eventually lead me to her. So she, with her tiny little eight-year-old hands, she starts pulling away the rocks in this pile of stones until her hands are actually bleeding. But eventually she's able to break enough of the rocks away that she's able to crawl through a hole. And she, to her surprise, she finds out that it leads her into another chamber where a dear friend of hers was trapped and in desperate need of rescue. She rescues her friend all because she followed the thread. And, and eventually the thread leads them both safely back to her grandmother's room. Friends, do you ever feel like the world is shaking you? Do you ever feel like following Jesus is leading you deeper into darkness, evil, and danger instead of out of it? Dear ones, the, follow the thread. Jesus followed the thread forward on the cross, straight into the heart of evil. But he broke through to the other side so that he could lead you safely through. If you follow the thread, it will always lead you safely to Jesus. Friends, do you, are you, will you follow Jesus wherever he leads you today? And the cross is the ultimate defeat of evil. He's already defeated evil on the cross so that whatever evil, darkness, or danger he may allow into your life can only make you greater than you were before and can only make you more like him. Follow him forward. This is a savior. This is a lamb. This is a dwelling place that will never let you down. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning that even though we look around at a world full of evil and we wonder why, one of the great promises we get from you is that you are doing something about evil, that you are destroying evil. And, and we can look at Jesus on the cross and see the ultimate answer to the problem of evil, that Jesus Christ absorbed all evil on the cross, that he was shaken by the greatest earthquake that ever was in order to shake evil to the ground and free us from all its effects, Father. So we pray this morning that you would help us to follow the thread forward, that even in this time of crisis and danger and pandemic and threat and fear and anxiety, that we would be able to follow the thread forward and that it would make us even greater than we were before, Father, not worse. Lord, help us to follow you faithfully today. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.